find myself getting a little emotional when we sing that last line, that Christ is mine forevermore. We think about all the blessings that are in store for us in heaven that God has prepared for us that we will enter into through a perfect inheritance one day. But to know that the greatest gift of all ours is, is ours right now. Greatest gift of all is Christ, and we have him, and he dwells with us, and his Holy Spirit is within us, and we have his word to guide us. What a beautiful and blessed gift it is that we get to be near to God through Christ. And we draw nearer to him in in so many ways that he has ordained, and one of those is through his word. And so I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, as we will humble ourselves before the King of kings and Lord of lords by entering into a time of study as we see what he has set aside for us to know, as we consider the things that uh, would not naturally be what we would believe if he did not change our hearts, if he did not wake us up from our spiritual deadness. It is a joy and a privilege for us to fellowship with God under the, the guidance and direction of his great and perfect word. So before we get into the passage that we're going to be studying this morning, um, I want to remind you that the last words of chapter 6 are going to continue to echo and resonate in the themes that are picked up here in chapter 7. So think about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, the last words that we studied uh, a week ago. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, if we're to glorify God with our bodies, then we should consider how that plays out in every aspect of our physical being. In the first verses of chapter 7, Paul will use the covenant of marriage as an example of how we can properly glorify God in our physical bodies, likely because the immoral sins that he addressed in the previous verses were threatening the integrity of marriage in Corinth. Whether you're married or not, this is important for us to see because uh, we're going to see that the marriage covenant is really just a way for God to show us how to love Him better and to understand better how He perfectly loves us. So whether you're single or married, whether you're engaged, all these words are going to apply to you today in a powerful way. And so let's read verses 1-5 through of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which will be the passage that we focus our attention on as we meditate in God's Word this morning. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, we are picking up on the theme of chapter 6. Glorify God with your body. However, chapter 7 also marks a shift in content because it is here that Paul begins to address several very specific topics that the Corinthian believers had mentioned to him in a previous letter that they sent to Paul. 
Hence the opening of the verse of the passage that we're studying today. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So 1 Corinthians is Paul writing to the Corinthians. But there is another letter we don't have that is the Corinthians writing to Paul. And so we must try to infer what the Corinthians asked of Paul or what they said to him and then really focus our attention on how he is responding to their comments in this passage. Paul goes on to reference a slogan or attitude that was commonly held among the Corinthians, one that they had asked Paul about probably in this previous letter that we do not have available to us. Notice that the English Standard Version um, puts it in quotations. Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. Now the quotation marks would indicate that this phrase was a statement made by the Corinthians to Paul. Not all translations put this phrase in quotations, but I think it is the right call. The ancient Greek language that translates into English that gives us this New Testament text did not have that kind of punctuation at all. They had not any kind of marking that would indicate that someone was quoting someone else. That tool wasn't available to the writers. So we have to guess based on context whether the author is quoting a source or whether he's sharing his own thoughts with us. Now, some of the translations you might be using this morning, some good translations, such as the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version, leave the text ambiguous here. And it makes it possible to see this phrase as Paul's own statement regarding intimacy. Now, I see two main problems with that. I see two problems with thinking that this quote is actually from Paul himself and not from the Corinthians. First of all, if the phrase is Paul's, then it would seem strange he would undermine it immediately by declaring that a man and a woman who are united in marriage should consistently have these kinds of relations. Secondly, the phrase is in some ways contradictory to the words of God in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for a man to be alone. This is the verse that spurns the creation of woman. And so therefore, I think it is better to view this statement as the thoughts of the Corinthians, not the thoughts of Paul. Though Paul will later agree to some extent with the rationale behind the statement, he can identify that as a single man himself. There are advantages to not being married. We're going to talk about that next week. He's also going to show why it's not a universal maxim for us to follow. Now, since this phrase represents a Corinthian viewpoint, we can understand that some of the believers there were making this kind of an argument. Here's their thought process. Since immoral sexual behavior is a threat to our spiritual health, perhaps it would be better for Corinthians to, and for Christians in general to simply abstain from sexual relations, period. Even if they are already married. Paul is addressing that attitude or that theory in this letter. Now, notice that in any given church, any given local church, not everyone thinks the same way. Can I get an amen on that? Not everyone thinks exactly like a carbon copy of the person sitting next to them. And not everyone behaves the same way, even if they do believe the same way. Corinth is a vivid example of that concept. In this one congregation, we apparently have a man who is so bold in his sin that he marries his dad's wife. We don't know if his dad was passed on or just out of the picture, but he marries a woman who is apparently his, mother, or his stepmother. And he keeps on coming to church as though nothing is wrong at all. You've got people in the same congregation that think that the body isn't really all that important. It's all about the spirit and the inner man. And so they've justified themselves going to prostitutes and indulging in sexual immorality. 
And in that very same congregation, you've got people who are so concerned about sexual morality damaging their faith that they're wondering if Christians should just give up on sexuality altogether and become celibate. So there's this great big range of ideas among the people in Corinth. You can almost see the pendulum of confusion swinging back and forth from one extreme to another. As these believers, many from pagan backgrounds, many who are new to the scripture, are scrambling to make some kind of practical sense of the gospel that they now identify with as believers. Paul's dealing with the extreme reactions to this, to this dilemma of how to walk in a holy manner. The apostle has already exposed the wickedness of embracing or justifying sexual immorality. Remember, he told us that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. Do not join Christ with the members of something that is unholy. And now he also needs to deal with the opposite extreme. He needed to temper the Corinthians' suggestion that celibacy might actually be the, the solution to all of their problems. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, they reasoned. In other words, if sexual immorality is bad, maybe we need to abandon it. Maybe we need to abstain from marriage. Or maybe those believers who are already married should just give up any kind of intimacy and just live as if they are Christian brothers and sisters from now on. Perhaps marriage requires us to get too close to this dangerous, possibly sinful sexual immorality that has defiled some of the church members in Corinth already. And Paul exposes their flaw in their thinking. To touch a woman, to have relations with a woman, is not forbidden, nor should it be villainized. The Corinthians needed to see that to be fruitful and multiply is a covenantal command and a blessing that we as his people must not forsake. So Paul responds to this notion in verse 2, and in doing so, he brings greater clarity. Verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Here we see much more than another rule added to the long list of rules that God gives to mankind in order to, as some perceive, limit the way that man lives. If we love God with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, and with our strength, then we cannot view the law of God that way, as some moral cage in which we live, unable to grasp the freedoms that we see on the other side. That cannot be the way that we see the law of God. By faith in the law, we see God's divine provision for us. We see God giving us the exact thing that we need to battle our fleshly desires that would otherwise lead us to wicked behavior. There is a temptation both within mankind and around mankind. And that temptation is sexual immorality. And there are more than that, but that's the one he's focused on right now. But there is also a God-given provision that helps mankind not to fall into that temptation regardless of where it comes from. And that God-given provision is the covenant of marriage. Paul wants the Corinthians and every generation that follows to know that marriage should not be seen as a danger. It should be seen as a defense. It's a defense for us. And so if you look back through church history and you see some of the errors of people who probably meant well but ignored the original mandate in the garden that it is not good for a man and a woman to be alone, 
such as the Roman Catholic Church that began to forbid their priests to marry, that said, if you're going to be a holy man, an example of God, then you must forsake marriage itself and you must stand by yourself. They were wrong to do so. When the monastic movement prompted men and women to take upon themselves the vow to be a monk or to be a nun and to forsake marriage altogether in an effort to safeguard themselves against sexual temptation, they may very well have been doing themselves more harm than good because they were forsaking one of the great tools that God has given to us by which we might battle this urge, this temptation. No marriage should be seen as a danger. It should be seen as a defense. There are many blessings that God intends to provide for us through the marriage covenant. And I want us to take some time this morning to consider a few of those blessings as they will help us to navigate the next several sermons that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 has in store for us. It is by marriage that we practice living in covenant. We, we become a covenant people through the initiative of Christ. But he in so many ways teaches us how to live in covenant by giving us this wonderful, this wonderful climate of marriage in which we can keep our promises to one another. Have you stopped to consider how important the concept of a covenant is to the way that God chooses to interact with man? Think about this. God did not have to interact with us in a loving way. As the creator, as the king of all things, he could have chosen to act with us in a simply just way. How many things have you created in your life that you didn't have a particular connection to or affection to? You made these things because you needed them or you had a creative moment, but ultimately the tool or craft or item of food that you made stopped being dear to you and you disregarded it. It was probably used up and it's gone now. But God chooses of all that he has made to love mankind in a very lasting and particular way. According to God's will, he has chosen to enter into personal binding covenants with human beings. Contracts of promised behavior that detail the ways that two parties will interact with one another. A covenant is a promise that comes with both blessings, a commitment to mutual good that will be done to both parties, and it also comes with sanctions, consequences that must come if one of the two parties does not fulfill their promise to bless one another. Now, when God made Adam and Eve, he entered into a covenant whereby man was blessed with life. Man was blessed by God with all that he needed to sustain that life. He was blessed with fellowship with this amazing God who was so much holier than him. He was blessed with family and the honor of representing God and having dominion over the creature as, or the creation as his image bearer. And there were sanctions to this promise too. The first humans were given very much freedom. But if they ate of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God told them, then they would be violating the agreed upon order of God leading and man providing for him. And the, sh the sanction for that violation would be death. Man would have to die if he forsook the covenant that God had made with him in the garden. In Genesis 8 and 9, after God has flooded the whole earth to purge it of sin, and after bringing Noah and his family to dry ground, what does God do? He reestablishes covenant expectations by telling them again to go forth and to fill the earth and to subdue it. 
This is an echo of the original mandate in the garden. And he gives them a promise that he will never again flood the whole earth with water as he had just done. And he also promises that one day he'll bring about a final judgment that will eradicate sin from all of the physical creation. He will purge the world of wickedness, not by water that time, but by fire. The rainbow is a sign of this promise, right? A seal of that covenant that God gave, a formal promise that stipulates both blessings and curses. And so on and so forth through Scripture, the Abrahamic covenant where God promises to make Abraham and his descendants a great people, special to God, through whom the world will get a glimpse of who this God really is. Through Moses, God covenants with his people by way of a law by which they will conduct themselves as his set-apart and holy people, its nation unto God. Both blessings and consequences flow from that covenant contract. Do this and live, he says to Israel. You can read about it in chapters 29, chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. And through God's covenant with David, we have the promise of a greater king, one who will not lead according to the sinful pattern of man, one will not who will not fall short in critical areas of holiness and sanctity, but one who will instead reign in righteousness and truth, a king who will restore peace in the midst of the chaos that our sin produces, a king who will reign not for a term, but for eternity, for forever. We are worshiping that king this morning, aren't we? King Jesus. These covenants are the very fabric of our interactions with God. Salvation for the believer is in fact God's way of overcoming the consequences we brought upon ourselves by breaking God's covenant in the garden by sinning against it. The wages of sin is death. That's covenantal language. You forsake the giver of life, you get the penalty of death. That is your sanction. But by love, rather than enforce the consequence of, his, of death upon his people, which God has every right to do as a just judge. Instead, God takes that sanction out upon his own son, Jesus. Christ entered into the world to take on flesh, to become like us with a human nature, to become a covenant man. He did what we failed to do by fulfilling every aspect, every inch, every jot and tittle of the original covenant. But, but rather than claim all the promised blessings of that covenant for himself. He freely chose to take our sanctions, our curses upon himself. Jesus was crucified on behalf of the elect in order to fulfill the promise of the covenant. He did that to set the believer free from the penalty of death, which was owed to God for sin. And so friends, covenants are a big deal. If you sit in your seat today and you believe, yes, I am a I am a believer. I follow God through his Savior, Jesus Christ. Then familiarize yourself with this idea of covenants because this is how God says, come near to me, my child. The most tangible, accessible covenant that we experience here on earth is probably the, the marriage covenant. A promise between a man and a woman, a promise to love and to cherish, to support and provide. This is a promise with clearly defined responsibilities, isn't it? We will do these things whether we are rich or poor, through sickness, through health. And we see that marriage is also a love that is bound by death. Don't we say the words, till death do us part? 
This is covenantal language. By living in the covenant of marriage, we are given a wonderful training ground for practicing and fulfilling covenant promises to one another as God's children. And if we determine to love our spouse as God has loved us, then our efforts to care for one another have the potential to open our eyes to so much of the grace that God pours out onto us in the covenant of redemption, in the newer and better covenant that has been revealed and fulfilled in Christ, whereby he has given his son Jesus to establish a lasting and incorruptible covenant with his bride, whom he has chosen and betrothed himself. We have a snapshot of that in the marriage covenants that we experience man to woman. It is by marriage that we enter in, or experience and learn how to live in covenant. It is also by marriage that we multiply and fill the earth. It is through this covenant of marriage that God allows us to fulfill the greater covenant that he made with us in the garden. Marital intimacy has an immediate joy that goes along with it. An initial thrill, but it also comes with the thrill of creating new life together. New life that you can raise up together. New life which, with which you might share the beauty and the wonder of the covenants of a holy God. A married couple, by God's grace, will usually multiply and fill the earth, not only with life, but with life that is taught from a very young age about who God is and how he can dwell with that God in covenant. It is by marriage that we are personally known in a thorough and truthful way. Ever since man and woman made their great mistake and violated the garden covenant, we have been tempted to fake who we are. We have been tempted to, to put out a projection of ourselves which doesn't actually match the real person that we are inside, presenting a false picture of our character and our personality to others so that we will be more revered and more respected and more attractive to those around us. Human beings have become really good fakers since the fall. That dishonest strategy may work to a degree on Instagram or some other social media platform where we advertise the very best about us and we only reveal the challenges of our sin nature when we can brag about overcoming them. But it doesn't work in marriage. In marriage, you are seen day in and day out. You are seen with your makeup off. You are seen at your worst and your best. You are seen in scenarios and contexts where the true pressures of life will eventually wear down your efforts to come across as some kind and courageous and religious person. You will be exposed for what you really are. In marriage, the evidence of your true self bubbles up to the surface. And when it does, the promise of the marriage covenant means that the person you are bound to, who is seeing you, not only understands who you are, they are committed to loving you anyway. They have promised to do so. And of course, part of that loving you for the believer is helping you to deal with those flaws within you, those sins that you might try to hide. They do that by pointing you ever towards Jesus, the source of our transformation and healing. What a great blessing it is. If you are in a covenant marriage where your, believe, your spouse is also a strong believer, what a blessing it is to have a wife that is willing to help you through your faults. What a blessing it is to have a husband who will lead you towards Christ, who will admit that he's not a perfect leader, but Christ is. What a blessing it is to have a mom and a dad over children that need to see covenant promises 
played out in a tangible way that they can see and experience and benefit from so that they might grow to have a confidence that if mommy and daddy can keep covenants to each other, how much more so can a perfect God keep his covenant with me? Adam and Eve walked naked in the Garden of Eden. Think about that. They knew each other. They were known. The introduction of sin threatened to obscure that knowledge and they began to cover themselves, trying to hide this rebelliousness that made them break God's law and eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in marriage, who we are is uncovered to our spouse. And that is true in a spiritual way. Our character is revealed and uncovered. And it is true in a physical way as well in the consummation that we share with our spouse what we shouldn't share physically with anyone else. We allow our physical self to become uncovered. We embrace one another, another for who we are, who Christ has made us to be. And this is true intimate vulnerability and honesty that the gift of marriage and particularly the gift of sexual intimacy within the godly boundaries of marriage has the potential to provide for us, friends. And it is, is a blessing to pray for. It is a blessing to desire. And it is a blessing to work hard to stay holy for with God's strength. It is by marriage that God provides a covenantally acceptable means for expressing love in a physical and intimate way. A covenantally acceptable means for expressing these desires that well up within us. Now I've said it before and it's worth saying again. Sex itself is not inherently evil. It is in fact a gracious gift from God the Father. But it needs to be enjoyed in a context that has provisions built in which will help us to not turn sexuality into idolatry. For all the prohibitions that Scripture puts on sexual immorality, God's Word does not seek to abolish sexuality itself. It seeks to keep it holy. It seeks to purify it. It seeks to keep it precious and undefiled. And so think about how Sexuality is spoken of in the Old Testament. Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And my children have just disowned me for saying that in a pulpit. Because <laughs> it's a little embarrassing for young people to think in those ways. But if you've experienced that love, that intimacy that can only come within the boundaries of the marriage covenant where you can trust somebody will be there tomorrow and the next tomorrow and for the rest of your life. There is such a freeing peace in that. And even that doesn't compare, friends, to the peace we have in Christ. This is not language that we see in Proverbs 5, 18 through 19 that encourages the, the faithful to reject intimacy or to see it strictly as a means for procreation even. This is enjoyment. And it is wise to embrace that attitude when it comes to sex inside of the covenant of marriage. You can also look at Matthew 19, Song of Psalms 5.1. There's some other verses I've written there in your notes. Ecclesiastes 9.9, where it says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. 
All the days of your vain life, meaning your life of transition, that he has given to you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. He's just gotten done saying we should enjoy food too. We should enjoy labor. We should also enjoy the wonderful thrill of being connected to a spouse who loves the Lord like we do, who we can be open with and honest with, that we can share our faith and our love for God with, and who we can experience sexual intimacy with. Do you notice what we are to enjoy here? Enjoy not just the opposite sex, not just sex itself, but enjoy the wife whom you love, your spouse to whom you are connected in covenant promise. The blessings of living with a spouse in the covenant of marriage and all the benefits it entails while you share life together is what's in view in that passage in Ecclesiastes 9. It's not something that we should be ashamed of, friends. It is worshipful to enjoy the gifts of God, the ones that he has provided for us in the ways that he ordained that we should enjoy them. It is a glory to God. Now, I want you to understand, as much as we should celebrate the proper expression of this gift that God has given, marriage does not solve all problems with sexual immorality. Young men specifically, I'll speak to you this morning. Getting married is not going to make you have victory over every sexual temptation that you battle with right now. It will continue to be a grind. It will continue to be a daily battle where you must submit yourself to the power of Christ to overcome those things. To battle sexual immorality, we must utilize every advantage given to us by the Father. We must learn to guard our eyes and our thoughts in Christ Jesus. We must submit even our our thoughts to him. Invite him to be reigning over not just our body and our outward expressions of who we are, but even our inner expressions of who we are. We need to respect every child of God as an image bearer and not as some resource to be mined for our own pleasure. That's one of the tools that God gives us to be holy in a sexual way. We need to live in the light, being accountable to one another and abiding with Christ himself who is our light. So we need to use all of the tools of God to battle against all of our temptations. Total abstinence from sex is not the panacea for sexual temptation either. The wisdom of God reveals to us here that a godly adherence to the boundaries of the marriage covenant will guard us against much of life's fleshly temptations. As verse 9 will declare to us next week, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Where do we get the necessary wisdom to battle against sexual temptation? It's easy, friends. The scripture governs our sexual behavior outside of the marriage covenant, how we should behave ourselves as a single person, which we're going to talk about more next week. And the scriptures scriptures govern our sexual behavior within the marriage covenant too. Verse 3 and 4 lay some ground rules that define intimacy within the boundaries of marriage. Husbands are addressed first. Husbands are told that they should give to their wife the conjugal rights that are due to them. Now, conjugal rights here is a bit of a translation stretch. It would probably be better to translate it as that that husbands are to fulfill their duties to their wives. Probably that translation is not chosen because it makes it sound kind of rigid and formal. But we hardly ever hear the word rights in a biblical sense because we rightfully, friends, should have none. Be careful about the way you think of your rights. 
I say that to a room filled with many American citizens. I say that with the stars and stripes flying on a pole outside. And I say it again, be very careful about the way that you think of your personal rights. Rights tend to make us feel entitled. They make us feel like the world owes us something. Some degree of freedom, some degree of payback. But our sin means that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who owe. God owes us nothing. We owe Him worship, repentance, service. And what we owe is far too great for us to ever repay. So we are eternally in the good grace of God who gives to us freely, not expecting us to pay Him back for everything that He has done for us on the cross because we cannot. And so the only way that we can justify thinking about our freedoms as rights is really to appeal to the promises that God has made to us. And even that should not make us proud or entitled. It should make us exalt this God of promise rather than demand more for ourselves. So be very careful, friends, about the way you think of your rights. We don't have as much as we often think we do. But we do have responsibilities. And if one aspect of the marriage covenant is that our urges for companionship and physical affection need to be relieved, then here is what a Christian husband should see as his personal responsibility. Satisfy your wife. Look after her. Care for her physical, spiritual, and emotional needs. Love her in an intimate way. It's a command of the Lord. Do you find it interesting that this command is not directed first to the wife? Is it because of the society and the way that the power was set up in that society that the masculine gender had dominion over the feminine gender at that time? No. I want to remember, uh, remind you here the context of what Paul is preaching. The issue that he addressed two weeks ago in chapter 6 that Pastor Paul brought to us, the order here is probably more because the issue that Corinth was battling was husbands getting their satisfaction from temple prostitutes and therefore denying the loving interaction that they owed to their wife. When there is an extramarital affair, the faithful spouse will often experience neglect because the unfaithful spouse is getting from someone else the satisfaction that God only intends for them to get from the one that they are married to. And so men are addressed first here. The husband has a conjugal responsibility to care for the desires of his bride. And if he's trying to care for his own sexual desires outside of the covenant, then he is doing his wife a great dishonor. He is sinning against his covenant. Sexuality in the marriage covenant should not be a selfish scheme to get as much personal fulfillment as we can from one another. It is not a conquest. It is rather a means of expressing our love for one another and doing what we can to help our spouse not fall into the temptations of the flesh presented in the world around them. I love what commentator Gordon Fee says about this. He says, although not primarily a duty, there are times when the duty aspect needs to be heard for the sake of the marriage. And Paul's emphasis, it must be noted, is not on you owe me, but on I owe you. You owe your spouse affection and care and consideration. Now this does not only apply to the husband. Verse 3, the second half says, And likewise the wife is to think that way towards her husband. She's to act that way towards her husband. A wife is to understand that her husband has sexual desires and that she has the power to fulfill those sexual desires in a godly way. 
Now, this mutual care and consideration involves affection, but it also involves protection. Protection against the desires of the flesh that might be manifested in an ungodly way in some, in, if they're not met and satisfied within the boundaries of covenant marriage. And this responsibility should be the outflow of a greater truth, one that may rattle the modern sensibilities of those who allow the culture to define their gender ethics. Verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Is there a red dot on my head right now? We live in California right now. How radical is that concept? That the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now that's radical today. But you know which part of this was radical then? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you see the mutual ownership that is expressed here in God's Word? We see an expansion on this radical concept that was introduced to us at the end of the last chapter. Your body is not your own. And if Americans struggle with this idea of, I have rights, I have freedoms, I have dominion over myself, it is rooted in this idea that my body is my own little kingdom and I'm the king of it. But we've been told that our body is not our own. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 said, You are not your own, you are bought at a price. But here we see that the reality of that transformation as it extends into the marriage covenant has further implications. In the atonement, Jesus purchased you, Christian. In the marriage covenant, you promised yourself to your spouse. You are not your own. Your physical body belongs to Christ first, and then it belongs to the one that you married. You have given it to them by covenant and to no one else. Your physical self is the territory of the one that you have promised to remain faithful to throughout the rest of your life. So marriage has the power to teach us the importance and the meaning of exclusivity, friends. Think of the Ten Commandments. In the tent, God is, is teaching Israel covenantal obedience. They're teaching Moses, and, 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 and uh, through Moses, God is teaching the Israelites how they are to interact in a pleasing way to God, in a way that would represent him well to the world. Think about the very first and the very second commandment that is on that list. It says in Exodus 20, this will be on the screen for you. Verses 3 through 6, You shall have no other gods before me. Straightforward. No other gods. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See the exclusive nature of this language communicated in the first two commandments. No other gods. That means that God wants to be monogamous with his church. He does not want you to flirt with other deities who are trying to jockey for your attention and to try to grab your love and affection away from the only one who deserves worship. He wants a one-on-one relationship with his church. You shall not make any carved images. You're not to make some some representation that tries to take the place of what only your covenant God should be for you because he is a jealous God. He is a God that desires you only for himself. He wants to show us 
steadfast love. And the word there in the Hebrew is hesed, which is a loyal love, a love that does not quit. Our ability to appreciate and to keep the first commandment can be greatly enhanced by a sincere pursuit of obedience to biblical marriage, a committed faithfulness that loves one in a special way to the exclusion of all others. Marriage can help us to understand that more fully. It's not a requirement to keep the first and second commandments, but it definitely is a help for us. Your body is not your own. Now that very phrase there, your body is not your own, you might expect our over-sexualized culture to latch onto that particular verse and commandeer it as a justification for those who are overly interested in sexual recreation. But you don't really see the culture doing that today. And I think that has to do with the assault that the rest of the passage does on our proud independence. You don't see people in the world going up to their wives and saying, look, you've got to uh, do whatever I want in the bed because the, the scripture says your body is mine and not your own. You don't really see that because if you read the whole passage, what does it say? It says, my body is not my own either. It belongs to you. Think about the humbling implications of that reality. Husband, you don't belong to you anymore. Your body is under the command of your wife. And wife, your body does not properly belong to you, under, you anymore. It is under the command of your husband. This is radical equality. Historically, the common cultural concept of sexual relations within marriage has often viewed sexual relations as the man's privilege and woman's obligation. We've seen that for many, many generations, many, many hundreds of years. But notice that here the Apostle Paul clearly debunks that bias. Hundreds of years before secular society started moving towards a more balanced view of marriage responsibilities and privileges. And despite being so late to the game to adopt these values that are counter to the sinful human nature, our particular secular culture has arrogantly presumed that they have surpassed the equal view of man and woman that has been stilled into us, into the people of God since the beginning of creation when God declared them both to be made in His image, man and woman both in the image of God in Genesis 1. But the secular culture around us says we can, we can do much better than that. They have overshot its attempt by mimicking biblical equality, but then determining to commit the opposite error of thinking that they can do one better than God and eliminating what is unique about the genders altogether. They believe that they are doing women a, a grand civil favor by saying that you can be every single thing that a man could be, but they are in fact mistaken. In fact, feminism that pervades society today and the gender confusion of identity politics is fundamentally devaluing that which is uniquely, uh, unique and beautifully woman in an effort to make women the same thing that they have felt oppressed by for so many generations. It seeks to make them men. God didn't make women men. He made women men women. And God didn't make men women. He made men men. And there is intention and grace in that decision. You see the irony in that? You see the irony in a culture that has just far, far missed the mark of what true equality is really all about. More importantly, do you see how any efforts of man to think beyond God's good instruction will only ever create a grotesque distortion of what we were made to be and what will most satisfy the longings of our souls for, in truth? When a man or woman is justified by faith, they are prompted by the Holy Spirit to take a step back and exchange their self-centered views of the universe 
for life perspectives that are founded instead upon and rooted in God's true vision of what life should be, particularly in his word expressed to us. So what does that mean in practical terms, friends? Denying one another's sexual affection within the marriage covenant can be a sin against God. It can be a sin against your spouse. Are there exceptions to this? There are. Paul himself lays one out in verse 5. And he says that for an agreed upon time, it is acceptable as a way of focusing oneself on prayer and seeking the Lord that you can set aside that marriage freedom to interact physically in an intimate way for a season. But he emphasizes here that it should be for a brief amount of time so that you don't put your spouse in a situation where they feel compelled to try to go outside of the marriage bonds to, to take upon themselves the relief that they would get within the marriage bonds if they were living according to the instructions of Scripture. Now, there are probably some other acceptable examples. Like if a woman had just had a baby, should a husband insist that she gratify him sexually? Now, there should be some understanding there, right? There should be some patience and some love and consideration for what your spouse is going through. If there's a great sickness or if there is an injury that makes that difficult for a time, then of course, do not demand which love would prohibit. The idea is not to make an excuse not to follow the pattern established here in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 7, but rather to remember that there are other patterns that we are striving to follow as well. Patterns of love and grace and understanding. We are called to be gentle-hearted and to dwell with our spouse with a sense of understanding. But the general command of marriage is that we should be enjoying one another physically and that we should not deny that to a spouse because we are bitter at them or because we're trying to get our way or because we're trying to vote against their leadership, or because we're trying to punish them in some, some way, shape, or form. We are to care for each other because our bodies belong to our spouse. Now, I understand we must be careful here. We don't want to blame adultery on a spouse who is unwilling to engage in physical affections. Each sinner is responsible for their own iniquity. The Corinthian who went to the prostitutes because his wife was not willing to love him physically cannot dump his personal sin into his wife and say that's her fault. But we would be wrong to pretend that sexual neglect doesn't play a part in our moral failures. It can. An important aspect of marital love is physical consummation. And we are holding back from our spouse what only we can, we can provide for them if we refuse to love them with our bodies. Now, I understand that there are potentially some very strong emotions stirred up by this command. As one's dominion over their own body carries a lot of weight in our culture, some may respond to Paul's commands here very defensively, believing that the word of God is too simplistic or it's out of touch, but it never is, friend. Some might say, well, this would be really easy for most people to follow, but not for me because I was abused before. Not for me because I am uncomfortable with my body. This isn't easy for me. It can't be expected of me because I can't compare to my spouse's previous partners. They were sexually active before they were saved and, and it was, it was, it's impossible for me to meet their expectations. Or they might say, I am experiencing physical issues that keep me from being able to do what is called for me to do here in 1 Corinthians 7. Are those real issues worthy of discussion between a husband and wife? worthy of compassion, worthy of prayer and understanding? Yes, they are. They're worthy of discussion. 
are they excuses that are so powerful that they effectively undo the commands that Paul is giving to us here in Scripture? No, they are not. And so I would encourage you, if this is something that you've been struggling with in your marriage, then seek some godly counsel. Seek some counsel from someone who can walk you through the Scriptures together and help you to grow in maturity in Christ together. It's not something that you really deal with in the pulpit directly, but in godly counsel, these things can be made right again. Submitting to the Word of God takes precedence over personal preference, doesn't it? So one of the implications of the first and second commandments that I read a moment ago is undeniably radical. We are to have only one God, and He deserves the greatest position of love and respect and affection in our lives. We love Him well, when we obey his commands, regardless of how difficult that command might be to keep. And so for the Christian, our love for God is greater than even our love for our covenant husband or wife. But by loving your spouse in a way that God has defined the marriage covenant, you are effectively loving God as well. Brothers and sisters, we are out of time this morning, but the Apostle Paul has so much more to show us about loving him and loving one another. I urge you to continue on with us each Sunday as we seek to become a church that honors the Lord by trusting Him to sanctify us in holiness. Do you have to be married or married to glorify God? Next week we will see that's not the case. In fact, you can glorify God greatly as a single person. But if the covenant of marriage is something that you enter into, let us do it the way that He has prescribed for us to do. Let me close with a word of prayer. God, we thank You for Your amazing grace and ask that You would continue to bless us abundantly with greater understanding, open our eyes to what is true and good and preserve us from error, not only in understanding, but in application. We love you and thank you for all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.